going on, everybody? Hey. 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 How you doing? I'm tired. What's been happening? School's good. Yeah. No. Why not? Huh? Is the good? Yeah, it's all right. You know. Top Gun. Top Gun. Yeah. Tell me if he doesn't like a guy from Top Gun. He does. He does. Which guy? Though? That's the question. Uh, I haven't seen the new one, so I don't know who you're the talking new about. One, yeah. I haven't seen that. You look more like Steve. More like Steve. <laughs> cool. Or Tom, Hanks. or Tom Hanks. I've never heard that before in my life. Cool. Well, can anyone tell me what book we're looking at tonight? Amos. Amos. Yeah, it's on the screen, right? I gave yeah. you gave you a little little hint with that one. Um, who can tell me anything about the book of Amos? It's called Amos? It comes before Obadiah. It comes before Obadiah? Um, minor prophet. It's a minor prophet. Who wrote it? Amos. 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 Yeah, yeah. We're going to Famous Amos. Famous Amos. Yeah, cookies, right? Delicious. Cool. So we're looking at the book of Amos. Um, and Amos is believed to be the first of the writing prophets. Um, Real quick, before we jump into it, I'll give you a quick format for how this evening's going to go. We're going to do some preliminary stuff kind of on the front end, then we'll get into an overview of the book, and then we'll go uh, towards the end, we'll go back and make some, some gospel connections. But like I said, Amos is believed to be the first of the writing prophets. Now, there were other prophets before Amos, uh, such as Samuel, right? Samuel was a prophet. Nathan, if you recall, Nathan was the one who confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And then you also have Elijah, right, who we would... Uh, referred to as sort of the prototypical prophet. But those prophets, although they did many uh, great things and they had a very influential ministry, they did not write any books except for Samuel. But Samuel's writings uh, were primarily narrative. They weren't actually prophetic writings. So there is somewhat of of a distinction between the writings of Samuel and the writings of these other prophets. Um, So even though Samuel wrote books, he did not write any prophetic books. Um, And so Amos is believed to be the first among those prophets who actually wrote prophetic books and specifically wrote prophetic books that we have in our Bibles today. He prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, also known as Azariah, which we looked at in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So if you're interested in finding out some more about the context surrounding um, Amos' prophetic ministry, um, I would recommend looking at both of those books, specifically 2 Kings chapter 15 and then 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Um, not only that, Amos was also a contemporary of, um, of Isaiah, who was another major prophet. Now, Amos' prophetic ministry spans from 792 to 740 BC. Who can tell me when the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into exile? Both Pastor Tim and Pastor Brad over the last couple weeks mentioned this. Does anyone know when the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into exile. Is that two different times by two different groups? Any guesses? 800 something. Say, say again? 800 something. Nope. It was 700 something. 700 what? Something. I don't know. 722. 722. And that was by which country? Huh? Is that Babylon? 
That was not Babylon. Persia? Not Persia. Assyria. That's right. It was the Assyrians. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 BC. And when did the southern kingdom go into exile? That one was by Babylon. 503, close, but not quite. Was it like 548? Nope. It was like four. Nope. 586. 586 BC, that's correct. So the northern kingdom goes into exile, 722 BC, by uh, the hand of the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom, right, which is commonly referred to as Judah, they go into exile in 586 BC at the hand of Babylon. And the reason I mention this is because this helps us understand when Amos prophesied. Amos prophesied prior to the exile. He's what we refer to as a pre-exilic prophet. Not only that, but the first verse of the book of Amos also helps us understand the dating of this book. Uh, We read in verse 1, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, uh, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we're not certain exactly what the date of this earthquake is, but it must have been a devastating one and one that people remembered because obviously Amos makes reference to it, right? He wrote this prophecy two years before the earthquake. Um, But the prophet Zechariah also mentions this earthquake in Zechariah chapter uh, 14, verse 5. There we read this, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord will come, and all the holy ones with him. So both Amos and Zechariah refer to this earthquake. And both Amos and Zechariah, when they speak of these earthquakes, these upheavals within the land, they refer to these earthquakes as sort of a precursor to God's coming in judgment. Uh, In fact, Jesus actually picks up on this theme in Matthew uh, chapter 24 in his Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, we read this, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And that's Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. So these natural disasters, both in the prophetic writings and in the words of Jesus, they themselves are not the uh, coming of the end, right, as Jesus put it. These earthquakes, these uh, natural disasters themselves were not the judgment. Rather, they were simply the precursor to the judgment that was coming. So Amos in his day, right, speaks of an earthquake, and that earthquake functioned as a precursor to judgment, right, namely the exile. And then you have Zechariah. In his day, he prophesied of an earthquake that was to function as a precursor to God's coming in judgment against the nations, And then in Jesus' day, he prophesies of an earthquake that served against, or or excuse me, that served as a precursor or birth pains prior to his coming in judgment. And so one of the reasons that I mentioned this, right, one of the reasons I'm kind of making a big deal about Scripture's use of earthquakes is because prophecy can be very difficult to read and very difficult to understand. It can often be very uh, confusing. And in a moment, we'll kind of get into um, how to read and understand prophecy. But um, in any case, we can see that the scriptures themselves give us a framework for understanding prophecy. Now, one of the best ways to understand and interpret scripture is to compare it with other scripture. 
For instance, as in this case, right, Amos speaks of an earthquake. So a good question to ask is, what does the rest of the Bible say about earthquakes? And what do we find? Lo and behold, but a pattern, right, for understanding and for making sense of what these earthquakes mean. Now, does that necessarily mean that every time the Bible uses a word, uh, does it necessarily mean that it means the exact same thing in every single instance? No, no, absolutely not. But in order to understand what the Bible means, we should first consult the Bible. We should see what all of the Bible has to say about a thing before we import meaning from, say, extra-biblical sources or just make up meanings ourselves. Um, one quick story about this kind of thing. I don't know if y'all have heard anything like this. Maybe kids were just weird when I was growing up. Um, but when I was growing up, uh, we used to say silly things like, when it's raining, God's actually uh, watering his grass, right? If there's an earthquake, God is doing jumping jacks, right? And that's why the earth is shaking. Or, um, you know, if there's a tornado, it's because God sneezed, right? I mean, it's silly, right? Kids say silly things all the time. But uh, this is a, a, a good example of importing meaning into something that isn't actually there, right? So if I read scripture, right, and I read, uh, I read the book of Amos and I read about an earthquake, um, should I uh, jump to the conclusion that, oh, when Amos speaks of an earthquake, it's because God's doing jumping jacks? No, right? I'm not free to make up a meaning on my own. And as we read and study the scriptures, we find out there's nothing in the Bible that gives us any indication that that would be the case. Now, like I said, that's kind of silly and a, a kind of crude example, but I think it illustrates my point, right? We must allow the scripture to interpret the scripture first and foremost. Does that make sense? Okay, so during Amos' prophetic ministry, right, uh, both the northern kingdom, which was referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, commonly referred to as Judah, both of these kingdoms were experiencing a period of national stability. And this national st stability led to national prosperity. <clears throat> However, despite this prosperity, uh, there was also rampant sin, idolatry, and corruption. And honestly, if we just take that description, right, stability, prosperity, yet sin and corruption, it kind of just sounds like most modern nations today, specifically our own, doesn't it? If you look at the United States of America over the last, say, 30 to 50 years, uh, this would be a good descriptor. There was national stability, there was national prosperity, and yet there was rampant sin and corruption throughout. So, in, uh, going back to Amos, in Amos' prophecy, he was denouncing the hypocrisy and apostasy of the nations and warning them of the, of the judgment that was sure to come from their violation of the terms of God's covenant. If you recall a few weeks ago when we covered the book of Lamentations, we went back and looked at the terms of God's covenant laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And specifically, we looked at the cursings or the punishments for violating the terms of the covenant. And what do we find except that what happened to Israel and Judah was exactly what God said would happen in the terms of his covenant. So Amos' message, right, this message of coming judgment for violating God's covenant, this was not an anomaly. Rather, it was entirely consistent with the way God has dealt with his people. Now, it is really important to understand this when it comes to reading prophecy. I, I know that reading pro the prophetic books especially as we get into the minor prophets, they, they seem somewhat obscure. They can be very cumbersome and confusing to work through. But part of the reason it's confusing is because we don't have an understanding of what prophecy is or what the primary role of the prophets was. 
But if, we, but if we can get a firm grasp on the fundamentals of reading and understanding prophecy, I think we'll have an easier time working through these books. So there's really two things I want you to understand when it comes to reading and understanding prophecy in Scripture, okay? Two primary things. If there's nothing else you take away from this, um, there, there's two primary things you need to understand when it comes to reading the prophets. And like I say, it'll help us in understanding Amos, but it'll also help us in understanding the rest of the prophetic writings, okay? The first thing is that prophecy is primarily forth-telling, not foretelling. Now, who thinks they can tell me the difference between forth-telling and foretelling? Anyone want to take a stab at it? What you got? Nope. Nobody wants to guess? What you got? Uh, the difference between like, predicting and telling the future. Like, because you know the future. Not quite. You want to take a guess? Uh, yes, no? Okay. So, like I said, prophecy is primarily forthtelling, and I'm sort of contrasting that with this idea of foretelling. Often when people think of prophecy, right, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh. <laughs> what's the first thing that comes to mind when we, sp- when we think about the word prophecy, when we so think of a prophet? telling the future. Somebody telling the future before it happens, right? That's, what's, that's what I'm referring to when I say foretelling. Somebody is telling the future before it happens, right? Now, there are certain aspects of prophetic ministry that involve predicting the future. But the primary role of prophecy is not to predict the future, but to bring forth the word of God. One of the key phrases you see throughout all of the prophets, but specifically in the book of Amos, is you'll see this phrase, thus says the Lord. I mean, in the first chapter, you see it about uh, eight different times. It says, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, right? What Amos was doing is he was bringing forth God's word, right? He was proclaiming the word of God. That's primarily what his job was. That's primarily what he was doing. Now, did he predict the future? Absolutely, he did. But was that the primary purpose of the prophet was to predict the future? Is that the primary role of a prophet? No, the primary role of a prophet is they were a messenger from God and they were bringing forth the word of God. And so this phrase, right, that we see in the book of Amos, thus says the Lord, this helps us to understand what his primary purpose was. And his primary purpose was not to predict the future, but it was to bring forth the word of God. Now, we know that there are no more prophets today, right? There's no more prophets today. That office has been wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. However, in a manner of speaking, every time we proclaim the word of God, right, that's contained in this Bible, in a sense, we're speaking prophetically. Every time Pastor Tim gets up in the pulpit and he says, here is the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, every time you speak with an unbeliever and you say, hey, this is the word of God and this is what it says and this is why you need to subject yourself to it, you need to submit to it, in a sense, we're speaking prophetically because we are bringing forth the word of God. We are proclaiming God's word. Now, that's the first thing, okay? The first thing we need to understand is that prophets primarily brought forth God's word. That was their primary role. The second thing we need to understand is that prophecy is always covenantal in nature, okay? Whenever we see prophecy in Scripture, we find that it is covenantal in nature. Uh, In other words, all prophecy is in some way, shape, or form connected to or related to God's covenant with his people, God always sent prophets in connection 
with his covenant, and the message of the prophets was always referring to that covenant. God often sent his prophets to remind the people of the terms of the covenant, how they had violated those terms, and the future judgment that was to come should they stay in their sin, right? And now this is very important because we see the covenantal nature of prophecy when it comes to the foretelling aspect of the prophets. When the prophets would predict the future, it wasn't just an arbitrary future, right? It wasn't just, well, it's going to rain on next week, Tuesday, you know? Uh, Trump's going to win 2024, you know? Uh, I don't know. Who's playing basketball right now? Who do you think is going to win the, uh, maybe the basketball championship? Maybe the Celtics. Yeah, Celtics are going to win the, the NBA, you know, championship. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, they're predicting the future was never arbitrary like that. It wasn't just sort of hanging in midair. Rather, it was always connected to God's covenant. And again, we saw this, right, when we opened up the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, and we looked at the terms of God's covenant, right? When we did that with Lamentations, you saw that what happened to the people, what was predicted by the prophets was exactly what God said would happen in the terms of his covenant. So the future that was foretold was not arbitrary in nature. Rather, it was specifically tied to the terms, the blessings and cursings of the covenant. If you, uh, uh, similarly, uh, prophecies that weren't about judgment, right, but were about blessings, were being brought forth because of God's covenant promises that he made to his people, such as those that were made to Abraham and David, right? Uh, Pastor Brad mentioned this last week. When God ratified his covenant with Abraham, right, God took upon himself the duty to not only uphold both ends of the covenant, but also took upon himself the punishment for violation of those covenants. So God's promise to Abraham was not on the basis of Abraham's obedience. Rather, it was on the basis of his own holy character. So at the end of the day, right, prophecy is always covenantal in nature. The prophetic foretelling of the future, when it took place, was always connected to God's covenant with his people. It was always foretelling the future that was coming because of their violation of the terms of the covenant or because of God's covenantal promise to bless his people despite their sin. So when we see the prophets, right, not just prophecy in general in Scripture, but specifically those who held the office of prophet, we should think of them as covenant enforcers. They came equipped with a message of God. They reminded the people of the covenant they made with God and foretold the future that was sure to come should they remain in their disobedience to that covenant. Does all that make sense? I know that was kind of a lot. But again, if there's two things you can take away from this, when we look at the prophets, number one, Prophecy is primarily, primarily foretelling, not foretelling, right? Sometimes they did predict the future, but that was not their primary job. Their primary job was to bring forth the word of God. And then the second thing is that their prophecies were always covenantal in nature. They were always intimately tied to God's covenant with his people. So now uh, uh, we're going to kind of shift focus, right? And we're going to look at kind of an overview of the book of Amos, So the primary themes we see in the book of Amos, the primary theme that occurs over and over and over again is the theme of judgment. Amos' primary message was that judgment is coming for sin. Take a look at these opening verses from the first two chapters of the book of Amos. In Amos 1.3, it thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Then in Amos 1.6, Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
Amos 1.9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Thus says the Lord, Amos 1.11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Amos 1.13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And again, in Amos 2.1, uh, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, if you've been paying attention up until this point, you might be asking yourself, okay, Drew, you just said that the prophets were covenant enforcers. Uh, you just said their prophecy was covenantal in nature. So why is Amos prophesying to pagan nations? Right? These pagan nations weren't in covenant with God, right? So what's the deal? Well, to understand this, right, let me get somebody to look up uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 for me. You can go ahead and look that up. Let me get someone else to look up Romans chapter 5, verse 12. All right, whenever you get that Hosea passage, you can look it up. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Six, verse seven. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. All right. So in that passage, we find out that the people transgressed the covenant, just like Adam. Right? It says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So that means Adam was in covenant with God. But if you go back to the creation account, you don't see the term covenant there. Right? So how do we know that Adam was in covenant with God? Well, because all the elements required for a covenant were, were there. Right? You had an authority and a hierarchy within the covenant right? by virtue of God's creation of Adam. Right? God was over Adam. And by virtue of God taking Adam and placing him in the garden and giving him commands, we see that there's an authority structure set up. There's God, and under God, there's a vassal. There's Adam. And then not only that, but we also see a law that is given right? God puts man in the garden. What does he tell him? Be fruitful and multiply. He says, of all the trees in the garden, you may eat it except for one, right? So we not only have the hierarchy and the structure, right? We, are, we not only have authority established, but then we have a law that is given. And then not only that, but there's also blessings and cursing. There's terms with the covenant, right? God says, of all the trees in the garden, you may eat it except for one. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see authority, we see a law that is given, and then we see blessings and cursings for obedience to that law or for disobedience to that law. Now, the Westminster Confession describes this covenant as the covenant of works. And the Westminster Confession is just a historical uh, confession typically used by the Presbyterians. We won't hold that against them. But uh, within the Westminster Confession, they describe this covenant as uh, 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 the life that was promised to Adam and in him to all his posterity upon the condition of personal and perfect obedience. So this covenant that God made with Adam, right? That he should be fruitful and multiply, that he should rule and subdue the earth, that he should not eat of any of the trees of the garden, uh, or he could eat of any of the trees of the garden except for one. This was given to Adam, and by virtue of being given to Adam, it was given to all those who uh, were the offspring, right? The posterity of Adam. That means every man and woman within the human race. Now, we know that Adam did not perfectly obey this covenant, right? What happened, right? Eve ate the fruit. And we find out that in the fall, this had effects down the line to every member of the human race. Uh, Lydia, did you look up uh, Romans 5.12? Go ahead and read that for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, so like I said, Adam functioned as the representative, as the covenant head of the human race. And had Adam obeyed, right, we would still be experiencing paradise in the garden. But Adam did not obey. And because Adam did not obey, he had transgressed the covenant. And we read from Paul, right, in the book of Romans, that because of Adam's transgression of the covenant, because of Adam's sin, sin has now spread to all mankind. In other words, because Adam functions as our covenant head, his sin is transferred to us. This is why scripture tells us that all men are born dead in their trespasses and sins, because we are covenantally in our father, Adam. So what does this all mean? Why am I, why am I going on this kind of tangent, uh, referring to this, this covenant? Well, the reason I mention this is because this means, right, this means that all men, by virtue of their father Adam, all men are in covenant with God. And by nature, all men are covenant breakers. This is why Amos can prophesy to the pagan nations. This is why he can prophesy to those who were not in covenant with God, because they actually were in covenant with God through their father Adam. And it is only through the death and resurrection of the second Adam that we can have our sins forgiven. It is only by the perfect obedience of the second Adam that we will have an alien righteousness imputed to us. Only through the person and work of Christ can we be born again and transferred from death in our covenant head Adam to new life by being brought into covenant with God through the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ. So can you see how this idea of covenant is very important for understanding the Bible, but specifically for understanding the prophets, right? For understanding the prophetic works and specifically the book of Amos. Does that make sense, right? So Amos is prophesying to these pagan nations because these pagan nations, not only by virtue of being God's creatures, but by virtue of their father Adam, all creatures are in covenant with God. And should we stay in our father Adam, the ultimate end for us is death. And the only way to, to, to have everlasting life, the only way to escape the wrath to come is to be by is by being placed in covenant with God through the second Adam. So, we see Amos open up by, he, by prophesying to these pagan nations. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, he kind of shifts his focus. And he goes from uh, prophesying to the nations to prophesying to Israel and Judah. We read in chapter 2, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and they have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their father walked. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So we find out that God is coming to judge Israel and Judah. We, re we read in chapter 2, verse 7, Those who trample the head of the poor into dust of the earth and turn aside from the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. So in that verse, we see that through their trampling of their poor and their turning aside the way of the afflicted, they demonstrated that they did not love their neighbor. Not only that, but we read that they also profaned the name of God through their sexual immorality, thereby demonstrating that they also did not love God. So they did not love their neighbor and they did not love God, thereby they have uh, violated the very essence of the law. You remember, Jesus uh, was asked, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? 
in the law. And he says, the greatest commandment is that you should love the law, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. So all of the law and all of the prophets are wrapped up in these two commands, love God and love neighbor. And what did Israel and Judah do? They demonstrated that we don't love our neighbor, and they demonstrated we do not love God. So as we move through the book, we see in chapter 3, we see judgments against Israel specifically continue. We read in verse 11 that an adversary shall surround the land and bring your defenses, uh, bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Now, in this verse, we aren't given any specifics, uh, but we do see that some foreign enemy would come and they would attack Israel and that Israel would ultimately be subdued, and that this was specifically a judgment from God for their sin. Then moving into chapter 4, we see the indictment of Israel continue. We read in verses 6 through 13 of the many ways that God was calling his people back to him, yet they did not return. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we read, I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there was yet three months to harvest, uh, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Over and over and over again, the Lord is reminding them of all the things in his providence that he brought to them. And how he brought all of these things with the purpose of drawing them back to himself. Yet, they did not return. We need to recognize that both blessing and trial are meant to drive us back to God. In times of plenty, we are meant to remember the one who provides for us. And in times of difficulty, we are meant to rely on the only one who is able to sustain us. In every circumstance, God is working to bring us closer to himself and conform us to the image of his son. So whether we are in the peaks or the valleys of life, we must always remember that our circumstances are for our good and for his glory and never forget the Lord. But what we find out in the book of Amos is that they did. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, they did not remember the Lord. They did not return to him. Then in chapter 5, we see Israel exhorted to seek the Lord. Uh, we see uh, God tell them in verse 12, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. Now, this is really key because we must remember that God sees all things, even the sins done in secret. God has complete and full knowledge of the depth of your sin, and there, there is nothing that is hidden from his sight. Then moving into chapter 6, we see a woe pronounced on those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. Zion, which is otherwise known as Jerusalem, is the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Samaria was the capital city of Israel. Uh, thus, these cities were these sort of political and religious and cultural centers of these respective nations. And they represented those nations as a whole. It would be, um, you know, it'd be sort of like um, Montgomery being a representation of the state of Alabama. Well, that's because it's our capital city. That's where all of our civil leadership resides. And same with Washington, D.C., sort of being a representation of the nation of the United States, because that's where all of our civil leadership lies. That's the capital city of our, of our nation. Um, and one of the things we see, right, in, in chapter 6 is that the issue is not with these cities, per se, right? There was nothing wrong with the city in and of itself. Uh, rather, it was in those who had placed their hope 
and their trust in those cities. You see, Israel and Judah, they had both become prosperous and powerful nations. And as such, the people replaced Yahweh as the object of their hope and trust with the nation itself. Again, this is kind of starting to sound like a very familiar story. They had forgotten that it wasn't their collective strength as a nation, as symbolized in their capital cities, it wasn't their collective strength as a nation that made them great. Rather, it was only by the hand of God that they were blessed. We read in chapter 6, verse 8, um, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares Yahweh the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. There we see that because of their violation of God's covenant and because of their rejection of God, God was going to bring judgment against them. Then in chapter 7, Amos is given a series of visions, and in each of these visions, uh, the Lord is revealing his intentions to judge Israel. Uh, one interesting thing is that in two of these visions, we see Amos intercede and pray for God to show compassion to Israel. However, with the third vision, we don't see any intercession. Then towards the end of the chapter, uh, Amos is told to leave Israel uh, by Amaziah. Amaziah was a priest um, in Bethel. And Amaziah says to Amos, um, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there, and go prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos tells Amaziah, and this is great, I was no prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Have you all ever heard that phrase before? I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. That's where it comes from right here in the book of Amos. And one of the things we need to, we need to catch is that Amos is kind of insulting Amaziah. He's kind of making a dig at him. You need to remember Amaziah was a priest. And there was only one tribe that was given the right of the priesthood. Does anyone remember what tribe that was? Levi. Levi. It was the tribe of Levi. It was Aaron's sons, right? Aaron's sons were the only ones who could become priests. And so Amaziah, as a priest, he kind of could. If he decided he wanted to leave Bethel, he kind of could just pack up shop and move somewhere else and go be a priest there, right? Because it was the family business. Um, so, but, so when Amos says this, right, I'm not, I was not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, he's kind of making a dig at Amaziah. And he's essentially saying to him, I know you're a priest because your daddy was a priest, but that's not the case for me. Not only that, but being a prophet is not a job I got into simply because it was the family business. And I can't simply go somewhere else and just continue the family business there. Rather, I was called by God to prophesy to this people. And then Amos prophesies to Amaziah the judgment against Israel as well as against his household specifically. We read in chapter uh, 7, verse 17, uh, Amos says, therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line and you yourselves shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land. Pretty serious stuff. So then in chapter eight, Amos is given another vision of judgment. We read in verse 11, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh God when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, 
nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. We need to recognize that what truly starves a people, what truly ravishes a nation and leaves her desolate is not a lack of food and water, as devastating as that may be. Rather, it is when there is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It is when pastors do not preach the word of God. It is when individuals do not read and do not hear the word of God. It is when societies and nations reject the word of God that destruction truly lays hold of a people. We must not put our hope in cities, in chariots and horses, in our bank accounts or our own abilities. Rather, we must trust in the word of God as the only sure foundation for our lives. Finally, in chapter 9, Amos prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we read in verse 8, Behold, the eyes of Yahweh God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. Then Amos goes on to prophesy of the restoration of Israel. Again, we see this sort of familiar pattern of salvation through judgment. We see that although God was bringing judgment, it was this judgment that was bringing salvation. And we see this... uh, typified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was through God's judgment against sin on the cross that our salvation was accomplished. We see in the book of Amos that though God was bringing his judgment against Israel and Judah, he would not put an end to them. Rather, he was working out all things for their good and for his glory. He would not forget the promises that he made to Abraham and David, and he would restore his people to the land and bless them once again. So that's kind of a quick overview of the book of Amos. And I know we kind of worked really fast through that. Um, But as is custom for this series, one of the questions we need to ask, right, after doing all that is, how does this point me to Jesus Christ? Where do we see Christ in the book of Amos? And so there's really three things I would like to to highlight for us. Um, The first one is that throughout the book of Amos, one of the key themes I mentioned at the beginning that we see over and over again is that God's judgment is surely coming. We see throughout the book that judgment is coming for sin. It was true for the people in Amos Day and it's still true for us today. The only way to flee from the wrath that is sure to come is to flee to Christ. For it was Christ who took upon himself the judgment that our sin deserves. So uh, if you recall, um, I believe when we did the book of Psalms, you know, we kind of talked about how to understand typology in scripture. Where do we see um, these sort of typologies? And here we see it in the contrast right? We see that it was through judgment, right? Through understanding the bad news, through understanding that God must judge sin, then we see the beauty of the gospel. Does that make sense? The second thing I want to highlight for us is, is a, a section in, in chapter 5. Um, I mentioned it real, really briefly. In chapter 5, um, verse 4, we see that Israel is exhorted to seek Yahweh and live. And in chapter 5, verse 14, we see again, seek good and not evil that you may live. Now, when we read this, right, it seems very simple, right? Just seek after God and you'll live, right? That could be good advice for us today. Hey, seek God and live. But if we understand our Bibles, if we have a healthy understanding of God's holiness, have a healthy understanding of our own depravity, this should honestly cause us to despair. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So we're told, right, the scriptures tell us, seek Yahweh and leave. Seek after God and you may live. But then we find out that no one seeks for God. That leaves us in an impossible position. 
And again, this is where we see the beauty of the gospel. In the same way that God's judgment highlights the beauty of the gospel, we see God's, the beauty of the gospel highlighted in the fact that we are unable to seek after God. We cannot in and of ourselves do it. That's why we need somebody else to do it for us. And that's why somebody else did do it for us. It is only through the person and the work of Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in regeneration that we are given new hearts, that we are raised from our deadness and sin and freed from our bondage to sin. You see, it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners are given the ability to seek after God and live. So even though we don't necessarily have an explicit mention of Christ, we see that in, through God's judgment, through the recognition of our inability to seek after God and live, we see the beauty of the gospel. And then lastly, one, one last thing I want to highlight for us is, uh, is in the restoration of Israel. Towards the end of the book of Amos, as I mentioned in chapter 9, we see um, Amos begin to prophesy the restoration of Israel. Now, these restoration prophecies ultimately find their fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. We know that there was some immediate fulfillment, right, through their return from exile. But as we covered when we went through the book of, of Lamentations, Israel was restored to the land, but they were not restored to right fellowship with God. And only through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would Israel truly be restored. It is only through the perfect Israelite, right, who would not only uphold all the demands of that covenant, but also take upon himself the penalties due for violating that covenant. Only through Christ and his gospel would Israel experience true restoration. Now, not only that, but we also know that the gospel restoration included not only Israel, but all of mankind. And Amos prophesied of this very thing. We read in Amos uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Amos anticipates the restoration of David's kingly line, but he sees the inclusion of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. In the book of Acts, Luke takes this passage and he applies it to the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. As Amos foresaw that Edom would be brought under the Davidic rule, uh, in the same way that Edom would be brought under the Davidic rule, when one thing you need to understand is that Edom represented all those who were outside of God's chosen people. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, who was the, also known as, what was Jacob also known as? Israel. Israel, right. So you had Israel and you had everyone else, right? You had Jacob and you had Esau. And so when, it when the Old Testament speaks of Edom, it's speaking of a particular nation, but they also stood as a placeholder for all those who were not Israel. So Amos sees that Edom would be brought under the Davidic rule of this Davidic king, and Luke sees this as being fulfilled through the inclusions of the Gentiles into the church. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are brought under the kingship of David's greater son, namely Jesus Christ. And we here today, here in the United States, right, none of us are Jews. All of us are Gentiles. We here are evidence of that truth. Because of what Christ 
did. We now live under the reign of the king of kings, the true son of David, the greater David, the greater king. And so I hope all that, I know that was kind of a lot to go through um, in one night, and I hope all that makes sense. Like I said, if there's anything y'all can take away, I want you to understand how we read and understand prophecy, namely that it's foretelling, not foretelling, that prophecy is always covenantal in nature. But at the end of the day, the main thing I want you to see is that we see Christ in the book of Amos, and we see Christ in all the prophets. Whether it's specific prophecy of the restoration of the Davidic line or the inclusion of the Gentiles through the gospel, or it's simply through God bringing his judgment that we see the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. Lord, we thank you that even though it can be difficult, even though it can be uh, cumbersome and even, even confusing at times, Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient. And Lord, that we can come to your word, we can study it, and we know that you will speak clearly to us in your word. God, I pray for anything that was said tonight that was confusing. God, I pray that you would clear up any confusion. God, where I seem to put my foot in my mouth, Lord, I pray that you would correct it in the mind of these students. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would see not only where Amos fits in this history of redemption, Lord, not only would we see some of the patterns that you've laid out in your word, Lord, for understanding sin, for understanding judgment, for understanding salvation. But Lord, I pray that as we look at the book of Amos, God, I pray that these students would see Christ. God, I pray that they would have a firm understanding, a thorough understanding of your holiness, a thorough understanding of their need, their depravity, their need for a Savior, their inability to seek after you and live. God, and I pray that in the midst of that, they would see the beauty of your gospel. God, that you have, through your gospel, given us new hearts, given us your spirit and a new heart, so that we may walk according to your statutes, be careful to obey your rules, Lord, so that we may seek after you and live. And so, Lord, if there's any student here tonight who has not been born again, God, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in their hearts. God, I pray that they would see that you are coming to judge their sin, that the, your wrath is coming against their sin. And it is only through that wrath being taken by the person and work of Jesus Christ that they will be able to live. We thank you and praise you for all these things. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.